Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased today to welcome Frederick W. Gooding Jr. and Eric S. Yellen, who are the editors of Public Workers in Service of America, a reader new from University of Illinois Press. Frederick and Eric, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Um, yeah, so before you. we home in specifically on the book, I wonder if I could ask each of you just to introduce yourselves briefly, tell folks uh, a little bit about yourselves and what brought you to the project. Uh, shall we start with you, Frederick? Sure. Um, again, my name is Frederick Gooding Jr. I am an associate professor of African-American history at Texas Christian University. And this project has been largely a decade in the making, a labor of love, if you would. Eric and I met at a conference, we were in a panel, and I was struck by the fact that he in 2013 had published a book entitled Racism in the Nation's Service, right? It was government workers and I think the cover, color line and Woodrow Wilson's um, America, right? Uh, I think that's the, the, the subtitle. But the point is that to see the word racism <laughs> as the first word of the book, that caught my attention as far as, okay, this brother uh, apparently is not afraid to speak about what is in front of us. And so I was intrigued by this and this it was just natural connection came because I was working on my first book at that time, uh, which was about um, African-American workers in the federal service. Uh, it's called American Dream Deferred. It came out about five years later. But um, meeting again in uh, the OAH, uh, I think it was OAH, right? And not AHA in Atlanta the following year, we just kept talking, we just kept communicating. And um, we were fortunate to get kickstarted uh, in New York, um, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the generous, you know, um, uh, contribution of some, you know, some colleagues. And that's when we were able to gather these group of uh, scholars together and just, just talk about something that we felt was hidden in plain sight. And that is the value of public sector workers, people that that we meet and greet every day. I hate to sound like Sesame Street, right? The people that you meet when walking down the street. <laughs> it's so very important that we oftentimes just, I don't think, talk enough about. And so I think that's where the relationship grew. And you know, so here we are a decade later, and arguably the topic is just as relevant now as it was when we started talking about it 10 years ago. Uh, Eric, what should we know about you? Sure. Um, so I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Richmond. and. Uh, I came to this project really for two reasons. And one of them, Frederick already lined out, which is that we wanted to work together. We, it, there was an immediate connection of interest and, and, and ethics and values um, there. And, um, and getting to read early his dissertation and then his brilliant book was, was just um, made me feel like there was, there was more that we had to say to, to a broader audience. Um, but the other reason, honestly, was that uh, it, the book that Frederick, mentioned, um, I was lucky enough to get pulled into a national controversy over uh, one of the people in my book, Woodrow Wilson suddenly became somebody we, we that other people other than me <laughs> wanted to talk about and whose racism other people other than me wanted to talk about. And so that was all um, great for the book and I think good for the country. But what got lost for me was that the book was really supposed to be about what is what is public work and what has public work meant to African-Americans and to the country as a whole. And so, you know, as Frederick and I started talking, it was like, OK, wait a minute, we can we can amplify this by bringing in people smarter than us, actually, who can who can um, deepen and and um, stretch what 
people know about Amer- American public work and about the public sector. Perfect. Um, so since you are both here, uh, why don't we begin by asking you to talk about each of your chapters, and then we'll move on to, to some of the work by other contributors. Um, so Eric, shall we start with you and and tell us a little bit about uh, what you call spoils as reparations, uh, and the experience, uh, particularly of African Americans in public service in the Jim Crow era? What should we know? Yeah, so the chapter... Uh, Posits a framing, well, two framings. One is that um, public work has been what I call an organizing tradition among African Americans who had the opportunity to either get the education necessary to pass uh, civil service exams or, and in most cases, the connections to the political machine of the late 19th and early 20th century that could catapult someone into uh, a job, a decent job. Um, and I arg- argue that that's kind of an organizing tradition because the rest of the American labor landscape was so um, opposed to an inc- the inclusion of, of the contributions of African-American workers that not only just doing the work, but getting the job and maintaining the job and using networks within government and politics was um, an organizing tradition like um, like any other movement, right, that we would, we would talk about in which people are trying to empower people who have been marginalized and disempowered deliberately, right, by, by, by racist uh, uh, um, uh, structures and people who, who wanted them excluded. And so that we know that African-Americans have found, and, and in some cases, people of color in general have found opportunities in government work because it has been an unusually fair practice as employer. Um, that tends to Im- imagine the structure as something that is willing to um, let in people who, who um, are marginalized from other parts of the labor sector. My argument is it's not just that, they, that um, the state was kind of willingly opening it's that African-Americans were opening those places, were taking advantage, were finding places um, where they could seek decent employment and seek work that was meaningful, seek work that used the skills that they had developed in their education or in their lives. Um, and they, you know, hold open structures like patronage, which we usually imagine as dirty, as corrupt, as uh, a legacy of a, of a, a pre-democratic um, closed system I would argue that for African-Americans, it was none of those things. It was actually an opportunity. It was a set of structures that allowed them to overcome um, intense racism in other uh, uh, service sectors and labor sectors. And so African-Americans organized uh, in every way you can imagine organizing works, right? Where, you know, it's it's on the grassroots, spreading word, teaching people how to take tests, teaching people where you take the test, all the way up to getting people in powerful positions who could then watch for uh, um, uh, uh, up and coming young people who who need or deserve the opportunity. And that becomes a tradition that begins almost immediately uh, after emancipation, almost immediately with full inclusion of citizenship for African-Americans, for African-American men, and continues until the 19-teens, until it is abruptly and deliberately halted by uh, Democrats, uh, uh, white Democrats working with, in Woodrow Wilson's administration. And so that, th- that does two things. One, it pulls a story much earlier than, than typically people tend to know that in the late 1960s, um, African-Americans found that opportunity again in great society programs and, and the expansion of the federal government under Lyndon Johnson. Um, 
I would argue that this goes way back and it is um, something more like a tradition than a, um, a kind of seizing momentary opportunity. And then the spoils of her as reparation piece comes in because this, this network of, of patronage that's supposed to be, we call the spoils, right? To the spoils goes the winner, this old system in which the entire political system depended on loyalty and on connections and on, in many cases, money, the money of government workers who would pay the dues and pay the the operating costs of political parties, all of that, which again, carries this taint of corruption for plenty of good reasons. I'm not arguing we should bring back patronage, but uh, again, for African-Americans, it becomes a way of saying, wait a minute, we are locked out of and have been locked out of the the opportunities that the United States is supposed to offer, um, a way of seeking reparations for that lockout locked outness, I don't know if that's the right word, um, is to seize this state-based opportunity in which um, because of political legacies of the Republican Party, we can uh, seek inclusion and find it. And so that's a kind of preparation for the exclusion everywhere else, you know, in the government, in, in, in government, in state-sponsored areas and in public life, private life. Uh, so why don't we keep pulling on this thread a little, uh, thread a little bit, Frederick? Uh, tell us a little bit about about your chapter and and what you refer to as black collar workers. Absolutely. And, and before I do, you have to forgive me. I'm an absent minded professor at this stage of my life, and so uh, <laughs> I, I forgot. No, to no, mention... You're too young for that excuse. Are, are you sure? Are you sure? Okay. Okay. Well, you know, okay. I got Ginkgo Gamboa to prove otherwise, but just um, wanted to shout out Christopher Florio, right? Because mm-hmm. it is through his Society of um, Fellows funding at Columbia University where we were able at the Heyman Center to gather all the uh, the. The, you know the, uh, the all the authors that were featured in the edited volume, and that's what really uh, started the generative conversation that formed the, the the book that we have right now. So we're we're very thankful for that opportunity. And so, with respect to black collar workers, um, in many ways, um, our, what we do is we in the book uh, not just talk about public sector workers, but or um, we talk about workers over a, a large period of time, which I think is also a little unique as well. Even though they're essays and snapshots, so we go from the 19th century to the 21st century. And so in so many ways, um, what Eric is talking about as far as um, him, many Black workers were, you know, taking agency, right? It wasn't just a matter of, you know, here's an opportunity, but many African-Americans were playing a, a pivotal role in creating opportunity for themselves at that stage. And, and as you mentioned, you know, it kind of came to a halt. I, in many ways, pick up from that point because a lot of people may not know, and as I'll just say right now, that Wilson, is the one that we can actually thank for federally segregating um, our our workforce, right? And so the postmaster off of Burleson complained, right? Because remember, uh, the you know a lot of the progressivists had argued that having African Americans in workforce was against efficiency, and so he had complained that um, his workforce simply could not mail, um, you know the you know uh, efficiently. I mean, they had to share close quarters in the rail cars with African American workers, and you know share the same cups and the same sheets, and this was you know just debilitating to their morale. So. I mean, just let's think about this for a second, right? You're talking about a a government that is premised on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you know, and and democratic opportunity for all is premised on these ideas. But yet the very workers who are 
who are literally in the office buildings are separated and segregated by race. We're, we're talking about file cabinets stacked up to, you know, just to, to separate people or people on different floors. So, I mean, so we're, we're talking about this, just this abrupt halt, right, of, of, this, of this possible integration. So I pick up after World War II, when all of a sudden that this stark segregation starts to change. Now we have to ask ourselves, is it because of uh, people were laying awake at night and just their conscience were eating them? And, and, and finally, we just had to just move in this altruistic notion of having equality for all, or was it a matter of opportunity and necessity. So with World War II, uh, we needed workers. And so everyone's familiar with Rosie the Riveter, we can do it, right? And so this idea that, well, with so many people, you know, you know in the war effort, we needed a, a, a work, you know, we needed a work supply from somewhere. And so that's where many white women had the opportunity to enter to the workforce and many African-Americans as well. And so when you're talking about many African-Americans at that time, remember in the 1940s, we're still talking about Jim Crow segregation being very much a real thing, right? And so uh, many African-Americans had some of the dirtiest and dangerous jobs in the South. And so the ability to take a test and so, and say that, oh, I can type 50 words a minute this person types 40 words a minute, well, that means I get the job because I'm more efficient. All of a sudden, this leveling of the playing field was a, a boom for many African-American workers who came to Washington, D.C. to work, right? However, come, um, this is something that I, I talk about is, is absolutely to be applauded and it was absolutely awesome. And in so many ways, but I go into more detail in my book about how it opened up avenues for black middle class. And I don't think it's any secret that when you look at say Prince George County right outside of Washington DC has one of the highest per capita incomes for African-Americans in the whole entire country, right? But that being said, with all this newfound opportunity, we also have an opportunity for racism, right? The first word in Eric Allen's first book, to evolve, right? And so that, that's the more sobering part about my piece. And so Black Collar Workers talks about how even though you have um, more opportunity, you have more African-Americans who are employed, you also have more subtle ways to still operate some of the same, you know, thinking of old as far as separation. And the idea is that black collar workers were workers, I mean, we talk about, you know, pink collar workers or white collar workers being, you know, upper elite or blue collar workers being our workers. Well, black collar workers is a term I came up with to, to symbolize the individuals who are simply, you know, just marked by just, just the color of their skin rubbing up against their collar. So the thing is, um, I'm not making this up and just making wild accusations because it is the public sector. Therefore, we have records. <laughs> we are able to see and peer in the 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 employee um, you know education rates and also the pay rates and and, and also you know the, the rates. And so, black collar workers as a, as a whole suffer from lower wages and slower raises, right? And this is what we're able to document based upon the data. Right, you know that this, and, and again, so many people ask me, "Oh, but what about education? Not a lot of Americans had education, and it's true. I mean, um, you know, many educational opportunities were restricted, uh, and still continue to be in many ways. But that's another topic for another time. But the idea is that still, when you aggregate out for uh, many individuals who had uh, college educations, they still were in positions whereby you know they were uh, being paid you know less for for their talent and time and also they were being promoted at slower rates i mean that, that's where one of the the famous expressions comes from you know there's always work at the post office i mean our famous brilliant author richard wright you know couldn't find a job anywhere else so he, you know he had to get started in the post office but the idea is that when when you when you look at it over time you know the the, the question is 
but what is the true cost of this opportunity? Because in so many ways, it, it was better than say some of the dirty, dangerous jobs, you know, domestic or agricultural in the South. But at the same time, they still did not measure up to their peers, right? And so one of the pieces that I end up critiquing is this idea of, well, um, if this is how difficult it was for African-American workers within public sector, right? Where arguably the records are more transparent, um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, this a more level playing field to get into the door, then what? does this possibly say about true economic opportunity within the private sector, right? Because within the private sector, we don't have the benefit of Apple. Would you please open up your records? They're not going to necessarily do that. I mean, they might brag and boast about, you know, the, the CEO being, you know, uh, compensated at a high rate as a symbol of strength of the company. But the, the fact of the matter is it's hard for us to peer in and see, you know, what, what the baseline is. But honestly, I mean, I think it's just a, a sobering referendum as far as what true, I'm a, true economic opportunity is within this country, if even within the public sector, we still have these challenges that still evolve and remain. And all the while expecting yeah. folks to be grateful for that inclusion, right? right? That there's this always this expectation, even for the folks that I write about, that they should be grateful for, for getting jobs that they deserve and grateful for being, you know, suffering lower wages and slower prices. And, and be willing to to set aside as uh, an, an inevitable almost outcome that, well, sure, there's still going to be discrimination in the public sector, but maybe it's not as bad. And therefore, somehow we should be patting ourselves on the back for that, right? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's correct. Because remember, yeah. the, the also a key novel feature about many of these government jobs was they uh, provided um, infinitely much more sec security than many of the other jobs that many African-Americans were used to, right? And so yeah. if anything, what, what, what it's been almost like flipped to, to this point where it's like this almost inside national joke, right? About how it's so hard to fire a government worker and how we tolerate the incompetence. And think about the thinly veiled racial critiques, you know, after 9-11 of if those TSA workers, you know, were better on their jobs then we wouldn't have had this, this issue. But, you know, but it, and, and so many ways what we're trying to do with this collection of essays is show you know, like Eric was talking about earlier, the agency. So many people were directly involved in truly making America, right, function as, as a better place. I mean, by, by these people showing up every day on a daily basis, that's what allows these corporations and the Jeff Bezos to have the open-ended, you know, uh, incomes, you know, <laughs> that, that, that we all laud and, and praise ourselves about in terms of, that, you know, the opportunity to succeed, right? But without these government workers, um, you know, none of this is possible. So uh, throughout the rest of the volume, you're, you've got contributions that look at uh, the history of, of women's experience over, over the span of, of uh, public employment. Uh, what I think is a particularly interesting chapter on uh, 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 early uh, uh, formation and strikes among police unions and long-term consequences of that. Two chapters on sanitation workers, uh, chapter on hospital workers, and uh, rounding out the collection, uh, probably what I think is the most recent analysis is looking at the, the more recent teacher strikes. Um, Eric, Frederick, where where should we go next in, in the next, uh, oh, I don't know what we've got left, five, seven minutes or so. Uh, where, what would you like to draw attention to, particularly either themes across all of those chapters or homing in on one or more of them? What do you think? Well, you know, I'll, I'll just jump on and state that I, I think what's fascinating is that um, 
you know, it is true that uh, public sector workers uh, are unionized at a much higher rate, right? I want to say roughly five to six times the rate that uh, private sector workers. And, you know, and, and, and still, if all my readings and all my learnings, I'm still a bit perplexed as to why union seems to be a bad word in, in you know, in, in, in open political parlance, right? But that's one area where it seems that we accept you know, this idea of union is when it comes to, you know, police, right? You know, and Joseph Slater, you know, really lays out this idea that, you know, this idea of brotherhood and protection. And if anything, you know, we, we can argue that some of that has been uh, leveraged, you know, to protect maybe some abuses, right? This, but because the police unions can be so very strong um, in terms of, you know, protections and, and whatnot. But I think, you know, what, what these essays, you know, um, you know, or essay like that re reminds us of is, you know, to what degree that um, maybe, uh, you know, similar, um, you know, uh, protocols can, can be, you know, built for, you know, other essential workers, you know, uh, because uh, when we look at our teachers or when we look at our, our, you know, hospital workers, you know, they're oftentimes vulnerable. It's just, I think it's a stark contrast to some other, more, what I would say, more glamorized unionized workers, right? Um, now, again, we have what's going on in LA, uh, you know, you know, the, the, the union, you know, um, um, you know, uh, you know, beef, you know, playing out, you know, and but most likely it's going to be resolved um, as they always have been resolved in times past. And a lot of people oftentimes forget that every individual that we see in front of us on screen is part of a union, right? You know, we oftentimes forget that part. You know, I now look at the recent American Airlines uh, pilots uh, scenario where they quietly and quickly resolve their dispute, you know, through their union. And so th these are these are areas where we, you know, we tend to accept it and get it. But yet when it comes to, you know, the, the workers that are a bit more visible, it, it seems to me um, that there, there's a bit more consternation. I think about the 35 day shutdown at the end of 2018 and 2019 and all the, you know, the public comment and vitriol over how dare, you know, these public workers, you know, stop, you know, what they're doing because there's this presumption, right, that, that you know, they, they have to to show up, you know, as what Margaret Brown would say, servants of the state. And I, and I think that, you know, to the extent that we see them as, you know, as equal actors, um, you know, in the economy, then maybe um, some of these harsh critiques should subside. Eric? Yeah, I would, uh, sure, I would add that um, that's all right. And also the, you know, every time we list the chapters and the topics in the book, I'm enormously proud. I think we 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 deal with so many different working scenarios and times and then i also think about what's not here right and so one of the intentions of the book of course was to be a, a touchdown a, a, a launching point for for other further research um but i would say that you know there's two other points i would love to just make in, in our time one is that the chapter on police is so powerful because it, re it reveals the way in which um, the way we think about unions and in particular public sector unions are, is so sensitive to political realities, right? The story of, of police unionizing is a story that um, labor scholars and labor organizers have looked to as in some ways as tragic, right? The, you get a strike in 1919 in Boston that's supposed to empower public workers and it's crushed by an ascendant, uh, you know, doyen of Republican thought, right? Calvin Coolidge, who will then go on to be president. Um, and so that seems like a crushing moment for, for labor organizing. And then miraculously, somehow police become the most powerful and, and organized public union in, in the country. That's not because police are better at unionizing. It's because American public changes how it thinks about police and 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 you know scare tactics about crime can affect how we understand what power workers should have and so these these all of these stories whether they're sanitation workers or, or police were uh, or uh, hospital workers reflect broader 
political and social realities of the country. And I think the chapters really show that. The other piece is, is that, that I think what's so brilliant about the hospital and teachers chapters is they really um, force folks who are suspicious of unions and suspicious of strikes to consider why workers and think seriously about why workers organize. And hospital workers and teachers routinely and consistently and historically have organized not simply for because they want um, a, you know, a second car in their garage, but because the working conditions do not allow them to serve the functions yeah. that the state is asking and the people are asking them to serve, right? Hospital workers in Chicago, uh, Amy Zanoni shows, were organizing because they couldn't care, care for their patients, right? And, and, and John Shelton shows that teachers have to organize because the expectations that we have put onto teachers for solving innumerable social ills are so insane that teachers are essentially have no choice to lay that bare and to show what the expectations and, and working conditions are that are ill-serving the future generations of Americans, right? And so you have to look at those stories and say, okay, wait a minute, I, I was told that unions are big, bossy truck drivers who just want, you know, more pay for less work. Or... <laughs> Right. Strikers are, are people who have thought about how the economy as a whole works and what the society needs and how they are going to provide what they've been asked to provide. And that, I think, blows open a lot, not just for public sector union, but, but for unions in general. Uh, final thought, Frederick? You know, I would just like to shout out uh, John Shelton, Amy Zanoni, uh, Francis Ryan, Rowan P. Jones, Joseph E. Slater, uh, Catherine Turk, uh, Catherine, uh, Catherine Cahill, um, you know, all for their contributions, um, because we do believe that, as Eric said, this is a start of a conversation. Um, we do not presume to, to have you know, it all mastered or all covered, but we're very much interested in continuing this dialogue because public sector workers play an important and pivotal role in our daily economy. And I think it's high time we continue to continue to, uh, you know, analyze this because to, to otherwise, you know, just sweep them under the rug or to, to, you know, just, you know, take them for granted, I think would be intellectually dishonest. And I think that we have an opportunity to, to, to really explore some more on this topic. And so we're, we're excited to be a part of this conversation. You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Frederick Gooding Jr. and Eric Yellen, who are the editors of an excellent new collection called Public Workers in Service of America from University of Illinois Press. And I, I, I recommend it to all sorts of folks, uh, political scientists, historians, uh, public admin folks, um, and, and I think particularly scholars of race and gender, because I think part of what's going on here is also an exploration of the ways in which those kinds of identities intersect in particular periods and in particular kinds of public institutions, and I think a way in which I at least have not uh, come across before. So thank you so much, gentlemen, and, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us.